We're moving along in the series in the book of Acts called Our Hearts Burn Within, and we are coming very close to the end. We only have a few weeks left, and I haven't said this yet, but I should probably say it now as we're getting close to the end. If you want to know what authentic Christianity actually really is, there is no better place to look than the book of Acts. And if you want to know what Christians are like in the face of danger and in the face of opposition, there is no better place to look than the book of Acts. And because through it all, we see story after story of courage and heroism. And that is what we are talking about today. Now, before you think that you don't really need courage or heroism in your life because you have a safe and comfortable life, let me say this to you. The person who, despite their circumstances, has developed the character of a hero is the type of person who is not swayed by the waves and the winds of the difficulties that come into your life, and is not swayed by the waves and the winds of the culture, but you stand firm, you are grounded, and you become a person of purpose. There's a story about an Old Testament king. He's a bright and shining light in a long history of faithless kings. His name is Hezekiah. And he really does some great stuff for God, and he is really faithful, and you're cheering him on. But then at the, towards the end of his life, he makes this mistake where he shows the treasures that are in the temple to his enemies. And because of it, he is told, now your kingdom will topple over. And he gets all nervous, but then he's told, because of your righteousness, it's not going to be your kingdom, but your children's kingdom. The generations after you. And he's actually happy about it because it's not his time. It doesn't happen during his time. And it's a real, like it's such a letdown because you're really rooting for him. And it's a very unheroic thing of him. Because heroes are planting acorns today that will rise up as oaks that will cover and shade the generations after us. And that is what we see in the disciples, and that, what, that is what we see in Paul today. And before I read our verses, let me set the context for you. Paul, he's from a city called, an area called Tarsus, but he rises up in the city of Jerusalem. He's raised up there under the feet and teaching of this great rabbi named Gamaliel. And he's likely making a lot of friends, who, a lot of young men who are wanting to come up as Jewish leaders with him. And then Christianity is birthed. And when Christianity is birthed, a great villain is birthed. And his name is Paul. It was Saul become Paul. And he begins to make it his job, his life purpose to destroy Christianity. And he's sent to, this, to the city Damascus. And on his way there, he's going to go and persecute Christians, arrest them, and bring them back to Jerusalem and have them arrested. And on this road, he has an encounter with a glory and with a beauty that so moves him that he becomes a Christian. And then when he becomes a Christian, he returns to Jerusalem to find that all of his old friends now hate him and want him dead because he's a Christian. The Christian leaders say, Paul, you've got to get out of here. And God agrees. So he leaves. 
And as he goes, he, he keeps taking on these missions, and he's becoming this amazing leader who would go on and become the greatest movement leader in the history of the world, I would argue. And then the Holy Spirit says, Paul, it's time to return to Jerusalem. But the Holy Spirit also informs his friends that if Paul goes back to Jerusalem, he is going to die. So they're weeping with him before he gets on the ship saying, don't go, this is to your death. And he says, what are you doing to me? Weeping and breaking my heart. Do you not know that I am ready and willing to go to my death for my Lord? So he boards the ship, he gets into Jerusalem, he walks right into the temple, and immediately when they see him, they beat him to the point to where he can't walk. He is carried before the tribune, and as he's, standing, as he's there, he stands up and addresses the crowd, addresses those who hate him, who want him dead. And here's, here's what he says to him, them. Acts 22, 1 through 22. We've got quite a bit of verses to read, so stick with me. Brothers and fathers... Hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are to this day. I persecuted this way, the way is Christianity, to the death binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I have received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. And as I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand. And the voice of the one who was speaking to me, and I said, what shall I do? And the Lord said to me, rise, go up to Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by the hand of those who were with me. And came into Damascus, and one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me, and standing by me, said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Now, when I had returned to, the temp to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that I, in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. All right, we're going to have Q&A after the sermon today. So if you have questions throughout, ask them so that I don't have to deal with that 
um, awkward, long silence in between waiting for questions to come in. So if you got them, feel free to text me during the sermon. All right, here's our first point. Courage, well, heroism and truth is the first point. Now, there is a difference between courage and heroism. A few months ago, I spoke about the difference between courage and heroism, and someone disagreed with my definition of heroism. And that's okay. You don't have to agree with everything that I say. What I want to ask you to do is to adopt my definition of heroism so you can understand Paul and the disciples and what they went through. So courage is to hold to convictions of truth in the face of danger and opposition. So you're holding to a truth, and there's a danger before you, there's opposition before you, but you hold on to that truth. You're unmoved. That's courage. Heroism is to have the right truth. Because if you don't have the right truth, you could become a villain. In fact, the most courageous people have been villains. They just hold to the wrong conviction of truth, and they stand for it unmoved. So Hitler was courageous, but not heroic, because he had the wrong truth. Socrates is heroic, because he's fighting for truth. But then we have the disciples. The disciples have found the truth above all other truths, the reigning truth, the foundational truth, the high truth, and this truth is a person. And this person, Jesus Christ, has come to restore, redeem, and make all things new in our world by how? Coming and being this acorn that dies and rises up to give new life to all the world. And what the truth is, is this. Embrace Christ and you embrace eternal life. Deny Christ and you embrace eternal death. And that is the truth that is reigning, this high truth in Christianity that they begin to fight for. And Paul, in our verses, when he's speaking, what he's doing is heroically speaking a truth that can save the people he speaks, but it might lead to his death. Or maybe both will happen. And he does it anyway. Now, so Christian heroism means that there are heroic acts, but there are words that must go with the heroic acts. There's, there's word and there's deed. There's truth and there's these divine, well, these acts that are divinely inspired to do great things for the sake of the truth. Now, okay, I want to say something. It has been said today that men have become weak. And if that is true, and I do believe it is, I want to tell you how this has happened. It started with an idea that truth is relative. Meaning this, there is no objective truth. I'm going to believe what I want to believe. You can believe what you want to believe. You can believe what you can want to believe. We can all believe what we want to believe, and we're just going to be okay with that, and we're not going to say anybody's right or wrong. We're just going to live in this environment where everybody might be right or they are right somehow. And what that has done is it's created this positioning, this place in our culture where we have no convictions of anything because we're not sure of anything because we all could be right. And what that does is it produces people who have nothing to hold, no convictions to hold on to. C.S. Lewis writes about this in his book called Abolition of Man. And he calls men who do not hold to objective truth, he calls them men without chess. 
And what he means by that is there's no objective truth that they're holding to. And he argues that what will happen because of that is we will form a dystopian society because we don't have anything good to hold on to. Because if there's no truth, then you don't know what is good or bad or right or wrong. And I want to read to you a quote from him in this book. I think it's brilliant. He says, we make men without chests and expect from them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. In other words, we want people of love and courage, but we don't want those people to hold to any type of conviction of truth. And then we're surprised when they don't act loving and courageous, but we've stripped them of truth. So what is there to be loving or courageous about? Paul is given a mission to carry a truth, and he's given this mission from Christ to carry this truth that eternity has everything to do with what you make of Jesus. That's the truth claim of Christianity. And it becomes the disciples' mission as well. And what this mission does is not only does it save people, but it creates more heroes. And these heroes cover all the earth, and then the earth becomes transformed. This is the calling of Christianity. And the disciples, what they are is they become acorns buried for us to make a world of heroes. And I I just want to walk through what every single one of the disciples faced besides John, what they faced with the truth that they held in the face of danger and opposition and what happened to them. All of them died. All of them were murdered for this truth. James, this is an interesting one, James is Jesus' brother, well, half-brother. And James was skeptical of Jesus all throughout his ministry. Until Jesus rises from the dead and James meets him, and then James becomes this heroic leader of the Christian movement. Here's what happened to James. He was told, you must deny Jesus as Lord, Savior, and King, and he says, I will not do it. So he was beaten, he was clubbed, and then he was shoved off a 100-foot wall and fell to his death. There's another James, James the brother of John. He was thrown from the pinnacle of the temple, but I guess didn't die. And then they stoned him and then clubbed him in his head until he died. Philip was impaled by iron hooks in his feet and was hung upside down. Many of the, a few of the disciples were speared. Matthias, the one who replaced Judas, and Paul were both beheaded. And then five disciples were crucified. Andrew, Nathaniel, Jude, Peter, and Simon. Nathaniel was skinned alive and then hung upside down. By the way, this sermon might be rated R. Uh, Peter was also hung upside down. Now, as they were approaching, you know, they've got to be thinking of Jesus' crucifixion. It's looming over them. This is a common way that people are executed. they got to know that this could be their, the potentially what's happening to them. And they've already seen this over and over again. They watched it happen to Christ. So here's what they're picturing in their mind. The, the way it starts is, is by flogging. This would happen with a cat, what's called a cat of nine tails. So it's a whip with little claw, like nine claws at the end of it. And they use little bones to make these claws or metal-like hooks. And what would happen is the whip would go into the back of its victim, grip the flesh, and rip. And then from there, there would be a wooden crossbow that they would carry on their back that's all 
ripped up, and they'd carry this. It's about 75 to 125 pounds, and they'd carry it to their place of death. And then they would be laid upon the cross. And two spikes would be driven with a hammer through their wrists and through their feet to hang them up on the cross. And the way the victims of the cross would die is typically by suffocation, though some by shock, because the weight upon their chest made it hard for them to breathe. So in order to take a breath over time, they would have to pull up from the spikes in their wrists and push up by their feet. Now, if somebody was there long enough, they would break their legs so they wouldn't be able to use their feet to push up. And then they would suffocate and die. Now, Jesus did not have his legs broken. In fact, this was talked about all the way back in the Old Testament. Not, not one of his bones will be broken. It's just amazing all of the ways the Old Testament talks about things that come true in the New Testament. Anyways, so the disciples knew this agony that awaited them. And they kept pressing into the mission anyways. They could have walked away. They could have had a nice, quiet life, raised up their kids on the countryside. It would have been beautiful. But they stepped into the mission. They put themselves in danger. Why? Because of the truth that they knew. Because they held on to a truth that they knew that whatever the danger that stood before them, that they would even be willing to suffer for the sake of their friends and even their enemies because they knew what happened after death. That, that death is just but a shadow that they would pass through into bliss. So the truth made them heroic. And the truth also humbled them into heroes. This is our second point, heroism and humility. You can't be a hero without humility. And the reason is because you have to make more of others than you make of yourself to be a hero. You even have to make more of your enemies than you make of yourself. That is what Paul is doing. He is beaten, ridiculed, mocked, stoned almost to death multiple times, all by his enemies for the sake of his enemies to come to believe this is true. Now, why does he endure this? Well, because the whole premise of Christianity is, says in Philippians that Christ humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So your Savior has done this for you. It inspires you to do this for others. So let's, let's define what humility is. Humility is not thinking more about yourself, more of yourself. It's not thinking less of yourself. It's simply being free to not think of yourself. You're not arrogant and prideful thinking how wonderful and amazing you are. And you're not self-loathsome, hating yourself, thinking you're so horrible. Because when you're down here, you're still obsessed with yourself. They're both the same. But the humble person has become free to no longer think of the self anymore. Why? Because they have found a beauty. They have found a truth so amazing they can't stop thinking about it and they're focused on that, not on themselves. It's like it's rescuing them from themselves. It's like finally being free of your dull existence of always thinking of yourself. Some theologians have called hell you being alone with yourself for all of eternity. And maybe then you think of heaven as being with God and his people forever enjoying the bliss of being with him. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not saying that doesn't mean you don't care for yourself. 
In fact, what I would say is the most caring thing you could do for yourself is to come to terms with this truth of Christianity, to be enveloped by it. And when you are, then you become healthy. You become healthy spiritually, which leads to emotional health and social health. In other words, unhealthy people think about themselves all the time because they're always trying to fix themselves. But if you've been fixed, if you've been forgiven, if you've been redeemed and you know what your future is going to be, then you don't have to worry anymore about yourself. You can be free. And if you're the type of person who does good things for your sake, that's like an anti-hero. In other words, you're doing a bunch of good stuff, but it's all for you. You're doing a bunch of good stuff so that God will love you. You're doing a bunch of good stuff so that everyone will think that you're great. And it's a, see, it's still about you. But when you've been freed, when you've been forgiven, you don't have to worry about what God thinks of you anymore. You know he loves you and there's nothing you can do or not do to make him love you more or less. And that frees you. You don't have to obsess about yourself anymore. We're all seeking to move from being anti-heroes to heroes. Like that's what we're trying to figure out. And it, we stumble and we stumble and then Christ comes in and he, he says, let me remind you of me. And it rescues us. All right, so how do we become people like this? You have to experience a high and beautiful truth so amazing that you're raptured up by it. You, you can't just know the truth though. You have to dance with it. Not dance around it, but be seized by it. This is our next point, heroism and beauty. On Paul's road to Damascus, where he's going to go persecute others, he has an encounter with a high beauty and truth so wonderful, so blinding, that it transforms him. Like he's literally blinded by the beauty on this road, and then he's transformed from this Hitler-type figure to this Christ-like figure. To be a hero, you have to stop studying the Bible. You have to stop studying it, and you have to start dancing with it. It has to stop being this intellectual exercise where you get to show everybody how much you know, and it becomes this place where you go and you dance with God. You have to be seized by the truth. You have to be owned by it. And then you begin to own this truth. And then you take this truth and you make Paul's mission. You make the disciples' mission your mission. There is not one Christian who has not heard the words in the Bible from Christ. says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And as you are going, in other words, when it says as you are going, as you go about your life, your everyday life, what are you doing? You're holding on to this truth. And you're making it known. You can know honey sweet because people tell you. But it's not until you taste it that you know it's sweetness. And then you want other people to see how sweet it is to be loved by him. The enemy of heroism is a dull and boring understanding of God. That's the enemy. That's the enemy of an abundant life. If you aren't experiencing his glory and his beauty, you will not be courageous. Not for the Christian truth. And I would argue that no other truth will rescue you to be a true hero besides Christianity. And there's an intersection that happens between beauty. So the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of Christ, and then you take the beauty of the community 
that the gospel forms, the church, and then you take the beauty of the mission that God gives us. So you have the gospel, community, and mission. And right in the middle of that is hospitality. All right, what do I mean by that? Well, I mean by that is there's this space that is made where there's this mingling of the beauty of the gospel in the community of the, the gospel forms of God's people and then the mission that God has called us on. And when that happens, what you find is people outside of the church, people outside of the Christianity are allowed to step into the space and experience what the gospel produces, to experience what Christ produces. This is what we're fighting for as a church, to be a place where believers and skeptics have authentic community, honest conversations about faith and doubt, true and authentic wrestling with faith and with doubt. And when you encounter beauty like this, you will begin to fight to become this type of community. Your heart will begin to burn within you to create a place like this. Beauty makes you courageous for it. Beauty makes you courageous to fight for your friends and even your enemies. And let me read something to you. This is from Lord of the Rings. It's a quote from Sam. Sam is called by the author of this book, the true hero of the story. And what happens to him is he has an encounter with beauty. And this encounter with beauty makes him heroic and humble, both at the same time. Let me read it. There, peeping among the cloud rack above a dark tor high up in the mountains. This is Tolkien talking, so, you know, he's, he uses beautiful words. But this is understandable. Sam saw a white star twinkle for a while. The beauty of it smote his heart. And as he looked up out of the forsaken land, and hope returned to him. For like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him. That in the end, the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was a light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. His song in the tower had been defiance rather than hope. For he was thinking of himself. And now, for a moment, his own fate and even his master's ceased to trouble him. He crawled back into the brambles and laid himself by Frodo's side. And putting away all fear, he cast himself into a deep and untroubled sleep. We're all seeking after a beauty that is worth dying for. Yet at the same time, seeking after a beauty that while we die tells us everything's going to be okay. And that is everything that Christ has to offer us. Paul holds on to a beauty that overwhelms the ugliness of death, and he knows it, and that's what makes him courageous. And from this point on in the book of Acts, Paul is going to go through a whole bunch of bad things. And every time it happens, something good comes out of it, because that's the way that God works. He brings beauty up out of the ashes that we have created. The way that it works is when you have found this beauty, the beauty holds in you. And it's God is this, this wellspring that's constantly pouring beauty into you. And when you are cracked, when you are broken, when you are hurt, beauty comes out of you. And it keeps flowing into you. That's why great things keep happening as Paul keeps stepping into the mission. Now, look, let me tell you this. People tell me a lot. 
I just want to be able to experience God more. Well, here is the way to do that. And you're not going to like it. Go into the mission that he's called you to. Step in. Into danger if needed. If called. Because here's what happens to you. So you hear this mission. Go and make disciples of all nations. Go and make disciples in your neighborhood, your workplace, your home. uh, To even your enemies. Well, that sounds hard. Yeah. You can't do it. So what do you do? You go to Christ and you say, this is a big mission for me, Christ. I don't know if I can do this. And he says, I know. That's why I'm here. And then you have this moment with him of his glory and his beauty and his worth, like enveloping you. And that says, okay, I'm going to go. So you go. And then when you go, what you find is, it's like he's gone there before you. And you're, so you're following him into your purpose and calling in the world. And then you get more of his beauty, which when you think there's this moment like what Paul has or like these disciples have, and you're like, I don't know if I could do this. What's happening to them is in that moment, like what happened to Stephen, they're getting a vision of the beauty and the glory of God, and it overwhelms them and sets their sights upon a high beauty that tells them everything's going to be okay. So they're able to step into danger with courage and heroism. Paul has given you something to live for. So how do you get the courage to go? Where's this beauty to find? And the answer is the beauty's found there at the cross. If you've seen the movie The Passion of the Christ, it does a good job displaying the physical torment that Christ goes through. But that is not the real suffering of Christ. The real suffering is spiritual. In the moment of spiritual suffering, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? And it's in that moment that he is covered with our horrid and horrible sin. And when that happens, the father turns away from him. And he turns his love away. And he pours wrath down upon his one and only son. Why? Because he is holding on to our sins. Our sins have been whipped upon his back. And as he is being held by those sins or they're weighing upon him, the father crushes him so that our sin may be dealt with forever. It's like the rod of God's justice comes down on him. And when it does, he descends into death. And into darkness. But he's too beautiful for death. He overwhelms it. He's the acorn that goes in. And then our tears water the earth. And he breaks up out. He rises. To begin rebuilding our world the way it was always meant to be. The process has started. It has begun. And then he's commissioned us to join him in this. So go to Christ. The divine, cosmic, heroic acorn. Who's going down into the death. And risen up. He's making you into something new. He's made you immortal already. And there is a beautiful version of you. That you will one day be. And when you look at his beauty. It says we're like mirrors. Mirrors. That when we behold him, 
we shine back his glory from one degree of glory to the next. Just keep looking at him and keep looking at him. And as you do, you will transform to be more of your heavenly and divine self. And that will make you become heroic for the people around you, the people you love, and even your enemies. Let's pray. Father, we are made for so much more than what we are living for right now. We know this. It's deep in us. Give us the courage to be people of conviction, heroes who hold on to this truth, this high truth above all other truths, and let us live with all of our might, holding on to this truth. And when danger comes, remind us that you are more than enough. Overwhelm us with your beauty. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to have a time for some Q&A. The choice is, okay, the choices we make, the choices we make today affect our future. Isn't it more important that our view of the future affect the choices we make today? Yeah, so... How did I say this before? There's a, there's a thing, um, if you've watched The Simpsons, there's a thing where Homer Simpson, he like eats like a whole jar of mayonnaise and then he's told you shouldn't do this and he says that's a problem for future Homer. And so our choices today will affect our future. However, when you know what the future is, it gives you a hope. Like, like, I think I told this story last week. I'm in this writing group, and there's a, an old German atheist, and I'm writing this uh, Christian spiritual formation book, and he said to me, David, hope is cruel. And he's right, it is cruel if there isn't something to come. But if there is, then that hope, what it does is it, it, it is a future hope. It's like an eternal hope that has entered into time. And when it has come into time, it like lifts you up. And then you begin to make choices that are good and wise because you know something. Here's the promise for the Christian. What you do today can echo on into eternity. If you will stop building your own kingdom and start building the kingdom of God, the things that you build here on the earth will last forever. And you'll be able to look at them and enjoy them all of forever, knowing that you began the building process even in the desert waste, even in the fallen world, which is such a cool thing to imagine. Like, that will bring you tons of hope. It will bring you tons of purpose. So step into it. When people around you are tightly clinging to the mindset that whatever you believe to be true is true for you, how can you point them towards the real truth without it feeling like an attack? Okay, first, you've got to love them with all of your might. You don't make it about you. This is not about you winning an argument. We don't have time for debates. This is eternal stuff going on. So, um, so start with love. 
The other, so there was a, um, a long time ago, there was, uh, there was like a Bible study that I was doing in my house. And um, there was, my friend uh, is a lawyer and he's a good debater. And he said, David, there is no such thing as absolute truth. And I said, are you sure? And he said, yes. I said, are you absolutely sure? He said, yes. I said, are you absolutely sure there's no such thing as absolute truth? He said, I'm absolutely sure. I said, do you hear what you just did? Did you guys see that? Did you see what happened? Okay. So um, you can't say that there is no such thing as truth because then the person saying it can't be trusted because they're making a claim that there's no truth, but that's a truth claim. So start with love, then show that there is an objective truth, and then I have found it helpful to say, look, I don't think you should believe Christianity. Let me see, I'm saying this to you. I don't think you should believe Christianity because it's useful. However, it is a good arguing point because it is part of the equation. So if you look at all other religions, all other worldviews, nothing produces what Christianity produces. It produces the most freedom. It transforms the culture. And it gives you this place where it's like you are no longer operating out of guilt and shame because you've been accepted and loved because of the finished work of Christ on the cross. So now you have nothing to prove to anybody. So you're simply free to love. All right. Well, that's a good start for you. So you're free. But also you're called by God to to do these things, and he's giving you power to do it. So you go out and you try to change the world around you. You mess up, but you're forgiven. So you're not paralyzed by your failures. You just simply keep moving. You like trip up and you stand up on the road and you keep moving. And that ends up changing the world far more than any other religion. And also, you know, if, if you want to look at other religions, I think I saw this the other day. So um, Buddhists will say that... Um, Christ is like, um, oh, what's the word? A re- reincarnation of Buddha, I believe, is what they say. In other words, they think he's someone you should listen to. Um, in Islam, Christ is a, is a prophet, so you should listen to him. Um, I, would, I would argue that all of the Old Testament is pointing forward to Christ, so um, if you're Jewish, you probably should listen to him as well because he's fulfilling a lot of these promises. So, all of these religions are saying like, hey, I'm away, but we think Jesus is awesome. And then Jesus comes on the scene and he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So everyone's saying point to Jesus, look at Jesus, look at him. And what does he say? He doesn't point anywhere else. He says, I'm the way. He's not a prophet saying this is the way to God. He's saying I'm the way to God. So you've got to deal with that. And if someone has properly dealt with it, then at least when they reject Christianity, they know what they're actually rejecting. Because a lot of times when people reject Christianity, they're rejecting not Christianity, but something else. All right, let's see if we can fit one more question in. Um, The Jewish synagogue told me they lowered the temperature in here. I hope that helped. Um, I'm getting texts for other things too. Uh, What did Jesus do while he was in hell? Um, so there's a little bit of debate of what happened on the cross. Did Jesus simply die and rise or did he descend into hell? Um, 
there are verses that could make us think a few different ways. The, the famous Apostles' Creed says he descended into hell. Though there are some uh, very well-known and good pastors who have said that they don't believe he went into hell. Um, there is also this strange thing that's happening in Peter, in the book, First or Second Peter, where it says that Jesus um, descended and started preaching to those in the time of Noah. So it's like, what are we? Ta- are we talking about time travel here? Like, what's happening? And so my answer is, I don't know what he was doing, except I do know for sure he is disarming death. Um, he's defeating hell. And he's dealing with our sin, and he's laying death in its own grave. I know that for sure. As far as like if he was doing like some punches or karate chops to death, I don't know exactly, but um, it was probably pretty amazing. My guess is that somehow his light is shining in the darkness and overwhelming the darkness. And it cannot overcome him, but he overcomes the darkness. So hell spits him out, and then he like sews it up to never be something we deal with again. Thank you for listening to the Grove Church Message Podcast. Like us on your favorite podcast provider. Follow our social media at The Grove Church Official and check out our website, thegrovechurch.co.